Hello, this is Pastor Aaron Shepherd, and you are listening to the sermon podcast of Union Congregational Church, the church by the park in East Walpole, Massachusetts. At Union, we believe in the power of God's word. And so whether you are able to join us when we gather each week at 1015 on Sunday mornings, or whenever or wherever this podcast finds you, I hope that you are inspired anew to deeper faith and greater resolve by the message of the gospel. Our current sermon series is called The Saints of Summer. Throughout this summer, we are assembling an all-star lineup of both well-known and less well-known people whose lives proclaim the good news of God's grace. Here's this week's message. The scripture reading this morning is taken from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did, when I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice before you, and now I am sure lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Do not be ashamed then of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner but join with me in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. May God add a blessing to the hearing of these words. Well, all throughout this summer, we have been following a sermon series called The Saints of Summer, assembling an all-star lineup of people whose faith shows forth the glory of God in the world. I think it's fitting that yesterday uh, we got our first chance to go to Fenway Park and to see the Red Sox play in that wonderful temple to baseball. Uh, as I said when I started this series, it was in part inspired by by my love of the game and by the, the Boys of Summer, the book about the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, it's wonderful now, though, to be here in this temple and to talk about the great saints of our faith. All along, we've been wondering what makes a saint. One of the early descriptions that I liked uh, came from uh, Nelson Mandela. A saint is a sinner who's, who keeps on trying. That's what makes a saint. But here in Paul's letter to Timothy, we see him describing a saint as one who is called, one who is called with a holy calling, someone set apart. And more than anything, a saint is one who acts as a conduit for God's grace, who lives faithfully, and through that faith, not only receives 
God's mysterious power and the blessings and the joy and the peace that come with that, but allows that to flow through them into the lives of others. It's a reminder that faith grows not just through miracles or, or through grand acts of service, but through the personal connections and relations that are already present in our lives. This uh, scripture I picked in part because at my ordination service three years ago, this was the passage that um, uh, my one of my ch childhood pastors, Thierry Matheson, chose to preach at my ordination. She came and she preached it. And um, it was a wonderful sermon, but the part that stuck out to me is that she, she reread the scripture. And instead of the grandmother and mother's names that is there, Lois and Eunice, she substituted my own grandmother's and mother's names. She said, the faith that was given to you by your grandmothers, Therese and Betty, and your mother, Mary. My grandmother, Therese, she was a church organist and a church pianist uh, all through her life. Um, she always wanted one of her sons to, to grow up to be a priest. And unfortunately, she had to settle for a Protestant grandson who became a minister. <laughs> my other grandmother on my paternal side, she's a, a lifelong member of uh, the First Presbyterian Church in Sterling, Illinois, a church where every important moment of her life has been marked, births and baptisms, marriages and funerals. Uh, she has served as an elder of the church. She's a faithful woman who who hauled my grandfather to church, who hauled my father to church, and so he hauled me to church as well. And of course, my mother as well inspired me to join the choir. Again, got me out of bed when I was a teenager and did not want to get out of bed on Sunday morning to, and, and often would make pancakes just to give us a reason to get up so that we could go to church, so that we could make it there. And it's those little things, it's those little acts that add up over time. And there's something special, I think, about uh, the mother's role in particular. There was a study in 2007 done at the University of Michigan about uh, uh, the importance of a mother for religious faith to develop. The study found that the personal importance a mother places on religion is a powerful predictor of the quality of her emotional relationship with her child starting before that child was born through age 23, which is, what they, which is what they studied. It shows that the effects of religiosity on mother-child relationships are both long-term and enduring. Exposure to religious themes, the authors of that study write, such as tolerance and patience and unconditional love, provide both parents and children with resources to improve their relationships particularly as children move into adolescence and young adulthood. And that, you know, I, that's one of these statistical studies that I like because it just confirms the thing that I already suspected. And it confirms the witness of scripture that we hear here today, which is that Timothy's faith was not given to him simply by Paul laying on his hands, but it came to him through his grandmother and through his mother first. And Paul says the same thing of himself. He says, I continue to worship as my ancestors worshipped, the God of my ancestors. Paul, too, 
received that faith. But he didn't just keep it. In fact, Paul allowed it to flow out of him to share the good news and the grace of Christ. But it's not just within our own families. That's the wonderful thing about a church, is that a church is a place where we can find spiritual grandmothers and spiritual mothers and aunts and brothers and sisters. And so today, you will note that the name in your bulletin is probably not one you recognize. Because the name in your bulletin is the name of a woman who is not famous. She is in none of the books about the saints. She is not uh, uh, widely known. But she was one of those people in my life, a spiritual grandmother to me in the church that I grew up in. Uh, Desiree Gilmore was her name. And uh, I always remember my initial impression when I first met her was that she was kind of kind of kooky. Um, she always wore purple, often just like three or four different shades of purple uh, because it was her favorite color. Um, and she would, she would come up to people and greet them with the most effusive greeting you ever saw. Oh, it is so wonderful to see you. Oh, such a blessing to have you. She would give people hugs and she would say, you know, you know, I love you. I love you so much. And when I was like an eight, nine-year-old kid with this sort of strangely dressed lady, I wasn't always the most comfortable hearing those words. But she kept on saying them over and over and over and over again. And it became one of these things that I cherished about Sunday morning, seeing and, and experiencing that love. I was not much of a hugger either. Um, I think a lot of us maybe uh, uh, don't come by that naturally, but she loved to give people hugs and to, to, to put a hand on someone's shoulder. She was just joyful all the time, even though her life was not a particularly easy one. When she was a child, she grew up in London during the Blitz. Um, she remembers having to leave the city because of the constant bombings that they were enduring at that time after the war she came to the united states and and made her life there in oregon but she always cared carried with her i think that experience of having to leave home of, of having to uh, uh be under constant a constant state of vulnerability and in her that turned into a deep compassion for those who were vulnerable, for those who were without a home. She always would treat people, no matter whether they were the homeless person who, who managed to wander into the church on a Sunday morning or, or anyone, a small child, um, with the greatest of compassion. I had a chance to talk to one of her friends uh, this week and she told me about how Desiree would always go when people were having surgery to sit with them before they went in. She would come and she would pray with them and provide comfort. And she always managed to find out about these things. And it was not ever clear exactly how, but she always knew when to be at the hospital, who to see. And she wanted to be there. It was very important to her to show that love. But she was also, in every sense of the word, a church lady. She led worship. 
She was a, a force behind starting an early service that was more uh, contemporary and contemplative. And she would often lead the service herself as the lay leader. And she would write all of the liturgy. She would write the call to worship. She would write the prayer of confession. She would write the assurance of pardon. And she would spend all week thinking about these words that she was going to put into the mouths of the people gathered there on Sunday morning. She would think long and hard about, about those words. And when she would pray in church, because we, we passed the mic sort of like we do here, when she would pray in church, she didn't just ask for prayers. She prayed. She chose her words very carefully and thoughtfully. And when I was young, sometimes that meant she prayed a bit too long, in my opinion. But it was never because she was, I realize now, it's not because she was trying to monopolize the time or something. It's because she was searching for the words that would speak the feelings and the depth of feeling in her heart, opening herself to God. And, you know, Paul writes in uh, his letter to Timothy about how the spirit is rekindled. The spirit is rekindled through the laying on of hands. And, and that reminds me of Desiree, too, because she was a person who would lay hands on you. She would put a hand on your shoulder and close her eyes and say a prayer for you. And again, that certainly made me uncomfortable at times. But it's one of those things where when you don't experience it, you realize how important it is. Early on in the COVID pandemic in 2020, I remember hearing a minister, I'm not exactly sure who, remind us that for many people, especially people who live alone, Sunday morning and the passing of the peace is the one time of the week when they touch another person, when they literally have that physical contact with someone else. I think for someone like me, who is constantly being touched by three small boys, I forget that fact. But for some people, that just, just the chance to pass the peace, to shake a hand once a week, that can be a life-giving thing to them. Research has shown that a great number of poor health outcomes are a result of being deprived of touch. Anxiety, depression, stretch, all of stress, all of these things can can come about if we are are not in physical proximity to other people. And then on the other hand, the physiological effects of having someone lay a hand on your shoulder or 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 hold your hand in theirs have also been shown to be profound. It, it slows down our hearts, allows uh, our body to release a hormone called oxytocin, which is one that promotes emotional bonding. And those, again, physiological, psychosocial benefits are wonderful to see them validated in studies. But we all know the truth and the power of laying on of hands. It's been testified in scripture. It's been the tradition of the Christian church for thousands of years. And so it may not seem like much that we gather and we pass the peace 
or that we offer heartfelt words to a God we cannot see, but that we nevertheless feel present and near to us. It's an important thing. And so as, as we come to this, to the close of this season of thinking about saintliness, I, I just want to reiterate that saints are not those who do miracles. The Catholic Church has this rigorous standard, this process you have to go through to be canonized. You have to have two verified miracles. Uh, and that's how you get up on the big board as a saint. And we're Protestants, so we don't do that. But in recognizing that fact, we realize that being a saint is something much more ordinary and extraordinary all at once, something powerful and yet humble all at once. Saintliness can come about not through great acts of power, but through this process of building relationships within our families, but also with those beyond the immediate bounds of family. Congregational life is all about that. It's about living intentionally together with other people, with strangers who become neighbors, who become siblings in Christ. And that comes about, yes, through being here in worship and raising our voices together, but it also comes about through passing a cup of coffee to someone or helping a child with a craft during Sunday school or, or preparing the communion elements with care or offering a handshake or a hug. And it's true that it once was the case that congregations, church communities like this, was where people expected to find these sorts of experiences and relationships. That that once was the case, but we can all look around. It's not like everyone is beating down the doors on Sunday morning to join in congregational living. It affords us an opportunity, though, to recognize that what we are doing is a strange and different thing. But if Desiree Gilmore taught me anything, it's that sometimes being strange and different <laughs> is the most beautiful and powerful thing that you can be. And so we may not hold the majority of of uh, the people in, in our congregations these days. We may not even agree with the majority of people about where life is to be found. But in coming together to worship God and to be with one another, we affirm that we find life here in this strange place. And so Paul says, do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed of this gospel that I proclaim that has landed me in prison. You know, it's not like being in prison was a good thing back then, and it's bad now. It was bad then. It was embarrassing to people that their leader would be put in prison. But Paul says, don't be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. Think about your grandmother, your mother, your siblings in Christ who need you to persist in your faith, to be a conduit of the grace of Christ for them as well. The world around us may have moved on from Christ. In fact, 
the world may never really have been willing to embrace Christ fully. But God doesn't move on from the world. God so loved the world that God sent a son not to condemn, but to save. And that faith, the faith that Christ gives us, it lives in you. Paul said it. Desiree Gilmore said it. I am saying it. God is saying it here this morning. The faith of God is still alive. We claim it and we proclaim it. We receive it and we give it so that the world may know God's love through us. And it's a strange thing and it's an odd thing, but do not be ashamed, for here is life and life abundant. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for listening. I hope this week's message has been a blessing to you. I know that having you listen to it is a blessing to our church. For more information about Union and its ministries, you can visit churchbythepark.org or find us on social media. Our handle is at churchbythepark. Our theme music is by the 126ers. Once again, blessings on your day, on your week, and may the peace of Christ be with you. Thank you.